You're listening to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Hosted by Rev Yearwood, Mustafa Santiago Ali, and me, Antonique Smith. Each week, we host important conversations with innovators, policymakers, cultural influencers, and movement leaders who are leading the way to a 100% clean energy and just world. Welcome, welcome to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. I am Rev Yearwood, President and CEO of the Hip Hop Caucus. And I'm Mustafa Santiago Ali, Senior Vice President of the Hip Hop Caucus. Uh, Welcome to our radio show and podcast that delivers real talk on climate change and environmental justice. No sides, just the facts and stronger communities. And uh, you can check us out here on, on the show and our blog at think100.info. And be sure to follow us online at think100show and also at hashtag think100. Um, so go ahead and submit your questions uh, using think100. Uh, and again, for those who uh, were just typing it out, at think100show and hashtag think100. So as many of you know, this show here is... In the same slot as both both Mustafa and I, uh, one of our mentors um, and just leaders who who was in the climate movement, Damu Smith. And the reason for me looking at him as a person of color, um, it is it showed me how important it was to be in, involved in this issue. But if you don't understand why this issue is important and why climate change is real. Let me just first start off by saying to those who are right now, as we're having this show, those who are from Tropical Storm Alberto, um, already two people have died that we know of. And I was talking to folks in Alabama, Mustafa, earlier today, Mm -hmm. and, you know, they were dealing with that storm. And so climate change is real. And if that wasn't enough, let me just go further right here where we're broadcasting um, this show in the DC, in the DMV area, um, Ellicott City, which is in Howard County, which is not too far from here, um, had their had a what, what people call a thousand year flood, but they had the second thousand year flood, listening two years ago. <laughs> so this is the second thousand year flood, and if you've seen, if you just go on and just Google what happened. Um, in Ellicott City, it was terrifying, and uh, somehow lost their lives there. And then, if that's not enough, why we this show is so important, why we do this show, Think One Hundred Percent, the coolest show on climate change. Um, I would actually, Mustafa, my heart just broke today. As you know, we have been working on issues regarding Hurricane Harvey and Irma and Maria, and you know me being from and having gone through and seen what happened with Hurricane Katrina, mm-hmm. um, I know that folks who either died during the storm and then they usually then they die afterwards. Um Taffa who's here, one of our, our in the in the house producers was talking about, you know, he's actually from the US Virgin Islands and was talking about your heartbreak and that breaks your heart. And today they estimate from a conservative aspect the death toll for Hurricane Maria. Mm-hmm. Is forty six hundred people. Mm-hmm. 
4,600 people who lost their lives. And not on, on top of that, many people are still in the dark. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it would be bad enough that they, that they lost their lives, lost their mama, their papa, their, 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 their grandma, their grandpa, children. Lost because our, we won't transition from fossil fuel to clean. But that's, that's not it. 4,600 people lost their lives. And so it just, it just blows me away mm-hmm. um, why this is so important. And then one of the last things I guess I want to bring up is in regards to why this is important is, is climate leadership and mm-hmm. politicians and why this issue is serious because when you have 4,600 plus people and those who are still down because their hearts are broken um, on this issue, then you have politicians who get out front and don't say anything. So we have a situation around this country, but also in Canada. So I'm talking about Kinder Morgan. Well, everybody knows Justin Trudeau, who's supposed to be a climate leader, uh, actually ran on that. Um, and had said that he was going to do the right thing in that space. Well, in relationship to Kinder Morgan, we now know that the Canadian government has made the decision that they are actually going to purchase the development of that pipeline that will run across Canada uh, and that will move those dirty tar sands um, and will further create impacts uh, for our planet, uh, for their country, and for other countries as well. Uh, And we know that many of our indigenous brothers and sisters have been fighting diligently uh, to make sure that not only that pipeline, but others would not continue to, one, exist or expand, um, because we are very, very clear. There has not yet been a pipeline that has not had breaches. And we understand when those breaches happen that it affects the water quality. That's right. um, And it affects people's lives. And it also impacts culture um, for individuals who um, are subsistence fishermen or hunters. Um, or who just enjoy the natural beauty um, that comes with a pristine uh, set of land. Um, So, you know, we've got to be so focused. Justin Trudeau has to do much better. You cannot call yourself a climate leader um, and then make these types of choices to be a part of profiting uh, over the pain of people um, and and our environment. So he must, must do a better job. And for those who feel that this is an injustice, then we must stand with the brothers and sisters on the Canadian side um, and be supportive uh, in pushing back. Well, I mean, that's that's clear. And all the pipeline fights, Mustafa, going on all across the country, we stay with you, even though it's in the trees. Mm-hmm. Mustafa, you going to get in the tree, Mustafa? You might have to get you in the tree, Mustafa. You know what? It, it, I might have to do that. Well, I, I, I'm with that, yo. We, if Mustafa gets in the tree, I'm going to get in the tree right there with him. We're going to be in trees <laughs> together fighting those pipelines. But, Mustafa, we have an extremely important show today. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a tough conversation for some of our folks in our movement to hear. But in order to succeed, it's a must that we take this conversation seriously and we learn from it and put it into action. So let me just say this, dear environmental movement, (laughs) um, we have a problem on our hands. Um, We cannot win how we are. Um, if we are to transition from fossil fuels to clean energy, then we must become more diverse. We 
are not there today. So today on Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change, uh, me and uh, Mustafa are, are going to confront this dynamic um, and this important conversation. And we are very pleased to have with us one of the premier experts on this issue, Whitney Tone, who is the executive director of Green 2.0. Whitney, how are you? Good. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here with both of you. Thank you. Well, Whitney, we about to get into this conversation. I actually want to read a statement from Al Gore. Um, he actually did this from the Lynching Museum. Mm. And this is what Al Gore, the former U.S. vice president, who has, you know, now a, a climate change advocate, um, who has tweeted about this show, think 100%. <laughs> um, um, but he has warned that the deepening crisis of global temperature and sea level rise and the consequent spate of natural disasters in America will increasingly affect black and poor people more than us. And I want to just make sure you understand. This is Al Gore in front of the lynching museum. And this is what he said. And while he was speaking at the opening of the new National Memorial and Museum that is chronicling America's history of lynching and racial violence in Montgomery, Alabama, Vice President Al Gore said that the U.S. could expect to see many more major disasters of the ilk of Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria that we saw last summer. And this is what he said. So Whitney, he said this, the most vulnerable to the damage and suffering would be poor and older Americans Infants and children and African-Americans who live in large numbers in urban areas where the heat island effect intensifies rising climate temperatures. He said that almost eight out of 10 African-Americans live within 30 miles of a coal-fired burning plant, are three times more likely to die from airborne pollution than the overall population of the U.S., and black children will suffer because of climate change. So, Whitney, how is it that people can think that this is not an issue for people of color? I think part of it is the fact that it's a systemic problem. It's not just simply, oh, that's a problem over there, but it's one that we've essentially ingrained in all of our systems. I mean, you know, the history of especially African-Americans in the U.S., and thinking about the lynchings and other things, there's a systemic oppression of them. And what you recognize is also where you live has an enormous determinant factor on what kind of access to environmental quality, protection, and other things that you actually need to just live. And because of that systemic nature of continued oppression, you're going to find these continuing problems. Hmm. And it's without the sort of systemic attention to the problem. Environmentalism is one problem, but there are others. We obviously think about immigration, criminal justice. Um, but thinking about environmentalism, like where do we live? What kind of water quality do we have? What access to clean food, um, fresh food? What kind of things do you have that you don't spend an enormous amount of money to be able to get it? But this should be for everybody. But because we haven't thought about it in the way around equity, 
and around justice for everyone that we don't create spaces to remedy these systemic problems. Hmm. And so it's not a function of, you know, people of color don't care about these issues. They care deeply. And as a, a mother who actually has a kid with asthma, which is actually a challenge I was dealing with earlier today, um, you really have to recognize that like this is happening to everyone. But for people of color, we often don't have a voice or we don't have access to power or we often don't have access to resources. Hmm. And because of all of those things, it's harder for us to then step in and say, this is what we need and this is what's going to take to get there. And this is why in part sort of Green 2.0 exists is putting people in positions of power. It's not just simply, okay, there's a problem. <laughs> we need to fix it. Mm -hmm. But we actually need the right people in positions of power to help fix it. Because they're the people who've experienced that systemic oppression and challenge that can actually look at it in a different way and come up with different solutions. And that's really what we need at this point in time is to put people in positions of power you know, like Mustafa was at, you know, the EPA. But we need people like that everywhere, mm -hmm. in government, in the public sector, in the private sector, all of the above, to then look at a problem and say, well, is that actually the right problem we're trying to solve? Or is it actually a different problem? And to then come up with the right solutions to help it. Mm. You know, maybe, uh, Whit, you know, I've known you for a long time. <laughs> I know how incredible you are. But for some of our listeners, yeah. can you just talk a little bit about where you come from um, and sort of how you got to this journey that you are on right now? That would be very helpful for folks. Sure. It's a, a long journey. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, so a garden stater. I know people don't think of the garden state that often. They usually talk about what exit, but <laughs> I'm officially a garden stater. And I went to college in Vermont, and that's, I think, the first time I really recognized the power of the environment. I remember closing up my car and driving to school and opening it up, and it was just, it was air that was fresh. Mm. It just felt different, and that first gave me the inkling around, like, huh, what is that? Mm. What about that's different? Um, and I took a bit of a hiatus after going to college and became a professional ballerina, but that's another story for oh, another day. All right. Um, but then went to law school and, and realized that the, the law was one of the incredible tools to help think about environmental issues. And after that, I went to work in Environmental Defense Fund in their oceans program. Learned more about oceans and fish than I ever thought I would, mm. but also understand the politics of fish and who fishes and how they fish and are they fishing sustainably? But also thinking about more locally here in um, the District of Columbia, the mm -hmm. Anacostia and the lack of clean water and the lack of fresh fish that someone can actually get out of that and how that impacts the communities here. And then after that, I did a, a few other stints, National Parks Conservation Association, working on diversity and inclusion issues. And when I joined that is when Green 2.0 got started. And I had a, a neat privilege after a couple of years um, under the leadership of Danielle Dean to then take over mm. um, and really push on the whole movement. So what are we doing on diversity? Mm -hmm. How committed are we to equity and justice? And what are we doing, especially putting people in power, people of color in power and women in power to help really remedy these environmental issues? Because what we recognize as part of the challenge is who has those seats? Mm -hmm. so, so let me, so let me, for folks who are listening, so people may be listening to this, and they are not quite understanding what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, okay, you know, I, I'm tuning in to Think 100%. 
the coolest show on climate change. I like listening to the show, and it's it's exciting because y'all play some y'all play Joey Badass at the beginning here with Joey with Devastated, and mm-hmm. y'all get some of the issues regarding climate change. So it's a great show, and we love it. But now I'm listening to Whitney, and she she's saying something about there's a problem, and. I'm not even sure that folks in the environmental movement know there's a problem. So let's actually take a step back and explain, one, what is the problem that we're talking about and maybe give some examples to what that problem is. Perfect. Great. Great question. So the problem is who is seated in places of power? And if you look across the environmental movement, when you look at NGOs, non-governmental organizations, foundations, and government agencies, you're dealing with at the most between usually 12 and 16% are people of color. And you can say, oh, well, that's pretty good. But then you look at the demographics of the United States. You say, how many people of color are there just in the workforce? You're at about 38% right now. Mm. And so you have to start looking and saying, well, why is that? And is the environmental movement actually tackling the problems of the people? Mm. And are we tackling climate in a way that is actually for the people, Mm. all of the people, not just the people who can move to the next house that's on higher land? It's not just the people who can filter their water. Who is the environment for? The environment's for everybody. And the question becomes, who has a seat at the table to make sure that is for everyone? Mm. And so that's essentially what Green 2.0 was founded on, the realization that a lot of these environmental problems, we're not actually tackling the ones that are often happening at the ground level. Mm. Flint is a great example of that, which is a lot of the sort of biggest environmental NGOs don't have a water quality section. They just don't have a department. They don't have anybody who's focused on something like that. Hold on, 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 hold on. So you're saying to me that there are environmental organizations that don't have departments or even program officers who are dealing with issues of water quality? In some respects, no. Wow. Like some of them will focus on water allocation, um, fisheries, Mm -hmm. other things related to water, Mm -hmm. but often not that much on just simply do people have clean drinking water. Right. You know, I think it's because people thought it was a problem that was solved. Mm -hmm. You know, like the Drinking Water Act had been established. It's been around. Mm -hmm. I think we're good to go. Without the recognition, like it still needs the same level of stringent adherence Mm -hmm. that we do to clean air and other things. Mm -hmm. But we just don't have that level of fervor, I think, around things that affect everybody because some people can essentially opt out. Well, I just wanted to add one thing that that Whitney was talking about, because sometimes folks don't understand when you don't have diversity at the senior leadership positions or in the middle management positions, you have blind spots in many instances. I often use the example that the environmental justice movement for decades had been asking uh, the big green organizations and everyone else to pay attention to the impacts that were happening in those communities. Mm -hmm. And we know that those frontline communities are the places and spaces where many of the coal-fired power plants have been located and other fossil fuel uh, sort of facilities, uh, emitting facilities are located as well, all the way from Cancer Alley, from New Orleans to Baton Rouge, all along the Gulf Coast. We can go in numerous locations. So if we would have had leadership who come from these communities, who had spent time in these communities, they could have probably better informed folks of why investing 
in those communities and making sure that we were pushing back at the proper times, uh, building the right partnerships, we probably could have limited some of these impacts that are now happening uh, as a result of the warming of the planet um, by limiting the amount of those types of facilities that were allowed to be placed in those communities. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, Whitney, this all comes together with Green 2.0 and focusing on and honoring diversity um, and, and making sure that that's not just an add-on, but it is a natural, integrated part of the process. So the question to you, Whitney, is, is why is confronting this issue and finding solutions such a big deal? I think it's so critical, both to sort of the longevity of the movement itself as one piece, and the other one is just policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one is like, you know, thinking about the future of the environmental movement. By the time my kids are grown... I want there to be a movement. Mm. I want us to, you know, hopefully fighting less, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. fighting somewhat for these environmental issues. But I worry about its longevity. If it's still going to be largely held by middle class, upper middle class whites, what happens to the movement in the next 20, 30 years? Mm. How does it sustain itself? How does the care and feeding of the entire planet become a front and center issue? Mm So that's one piece. The other one is when it comes to policy decisions around who decides, who gets protected, and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about, you know, it started, Reverend Yard with you know, hurricanes. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's so prescient so quickly of who gets impacted, where can they go, and what's their flexibility or freedom or lack thereof in the options they have. And if you don't think really carefully about those and who's in those seats to think and make those policy decisions around where money goes resources, people, if those aren't focused also on communities of color, guess what? Those communities don't get resources. Mm. They don't get money. And so for me, it's a both and. You got to think about the policy, but you also got to think about the actual like resources and longevity of this movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so, so let's get to, so I, I mean, Mustafa, when I hear you both, but my problem is this. There's only one planet. <laughs> right. Right. Um, we all like clean air. Mm-hmm. We all like clean water. Mm-hmm. I hope, right? Just, mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. And the, the environmental movement wins by having a broader movement fighting these things. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. So we, we understand. We, we're there. Mm-hmm. This is the thing, though. This is, this is where I get the, the problem. And then the question, Whitney, um, is that. Is there something else culturally mm-hmm. that is stopping the environmental movement from broadening itself? Mm-hmm. Is there something else that is not allowing for them to trust people of color in positions of authority? Is there something if you, if we if if we take it at face value that we believe that if we don't make the changes, it will have we are already seeing the catastrophic events. But if we're saying that it, it, what else could it be that is hindering? Because so let me say this in this process with me and maybe and, and, and Mustafa jump in here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It, it, it's. You started off with saying that we have an environmental movement that is far beyond with the 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 employment numbers should be for the mainstream movement. And we know that this movement 
as Al Gore has said, needs to be putting priority on communities of color. But what's stopped? Something has to be stopping because it's seen like that should be a, a quick fix. And if it's not a quick fix, then what is stopping? And what comes to me is what Bill Leonard once told, which said is that race is the tripwire for the progressive movement. <laughs> and so is it that race is this tripwire that every time we get to this conversation of diversity, this conversation of broadening, of bringing more people in, that somehow the movement is falls over because it can't get beyond its own stereotypes and biases. So simply, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, as you said, like, this is across the progressive movement. It's not just this. Mm-hmm. It's also when you think about the sort of largest LGBTQ movement, mm-hmm. reproductive rights, you've had other institutions have to pop up mm-hmm. to essentially build the people of color side of the movement. There's reproductive justice. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there are lots of things, environmental justice, same thing. But you've had to have this, like, essentially parallel movement that exists that has to get creative to essentially foster people of color in a movement with the with the values that they have mm-hmm. and so i think you're right there is essentially a, a tripwire of some kind and i'm going to use that phrase from now on mm-hmm. um about the fact that just race in the u.s we haven't tackled and it's not just simply like the environmental movement has a problem it's because in the u.s we still haven't tackled race mm. And because of that, our systems and then things like the environmental movement essentially embed that construct around race. And so, you know, when I think about the rooms I often walk into, like I often walked into rooms with the largest, you know, NGOs. Um, I'm at the CEO table. I am usually one of three or four women Mm -hmm. and usually one of only three or four women of color, Mm -hmm. period. And it's like. Recognizing, like, I am bumping up against every stereotype that people have of an African-American woman in that moment. And it's because people have gotten to trust me that they're willing to hear me. But that took time. Like, if I showed up there and just decided to rail against the machine, Mm -hmm. which sometimes I need to do. Mm -hmm. But it's hard because all of a sudden it's like, well, you're an outsider. Explain that. That, That's an important. Explain what that means, what you just said there. Yeah. And I think for me, it's a little different because I've I've been involved in these NGOs and worked for them. Mm. And so I'm not seen as that outsider in the same way that a lot of people who step into that space could. Mm. It's because I've worked for Environmental Defense Fund. I've worked for the National Parks Conservation. People know I care about this, but we also need people who don't look and don't have the same career path as me. Mm-hmm. And that outsider perspective is like, well, you don't understand us because you haven't grown up with us. Mm-hmm. You don't know what we're like. And so because of that, you create this distance. And that's the us versus them. Like, well, you don't understand us, so we don't understand you. And those barriers just need to be broken down. Mm-hmm. You need to recognize that we all care about the same thing and go back to values and go back to basics, mm-hmm. which is we all want clean water. We all want clean air. Build it from there. But don't say, like, well, you don't understand us, so we won't let you in. But those are just, those are automatic doors that people don't even realize that they have mm-hmm. most of the time. And it's those blind spots, Mustafa, that you're talking about, that people just don't realize that, like, when somebody else walks into a room, how subtly they even stop paying attention to them. Mm-hmm. Subtly they dismiss them. Mm. And it's those subtle things that add up. Then somebody feels like, well, I'm not going to show up in that door or that room anymore. 
but it's those subtle, insidious things that force the insider outsider. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we should, maybe we should unpack some of this for folks who maybe don't have. Unfortunately, maybe they have not yet read the Green 2.0 report, which everybody should go out and definitely do. So let's just talk a little bit, Whitney, about the boards, Mm -hmm. the senior level positions, and sort of the dynamics of what goes on in middle management. If I am a person of color moving into an organization, you know, what are those dynamics that the report is finding? Yeah, so I'd say a lot of it is around bias, especially, and sort of insular recruiting. Like if I have a group of friends, like if I went to, you know, Middlebury College, if I went there, imagine what my group of friends probably looks like, mm-hmm. you know? And because of that, well, that tells you if you're going to pull the next junior counselor, the next region, you know, resident advisor, but more importantly, your first next manager, you're going to go to the group that you know, because they're your closest friends, you trust them, you've experienced it, you'll pull from there. And that's often what happens. Is like either the college you went to, the school you went to, or your own network is where you pull Mm -hmm. the next leader from. But as a default, because of the way our society exists, it is usually only one group of people. If you went to a place like Howard, it'd be very different. Mm -hmm. But because the environmental movement was also born out of middle class whites, that's their network. And so as a result, you essentially perpetuate that network going forward. And until you take active steps to shift that and say like, no, I'm not going to actually just go to my network. I'm going to extend out one more rung and say, who's at my church? Who goes to the school that was next door to mine, but not mine? Where can I find that next leader who might not have experience in this movement, but might have all of the skills that you need? But you got to take that step out. But Mm -hmm. it's also pulling people out of their comfort zone, Mm -hmm. which often people don't want to go to which is like, well, I'm comfortable. I know these people. I trust them. But somebody a little further out, can I trust them? Can I know that they're going to do a good job? Will I have to train them? What are all the other things I don't know about them that might come back at me? Hmm. And it's often that experience that causes people to say, like, no, I'm not going to do it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this is, this is I'm telling you, Mustafa, this is some amazing, you are hitting on some, on some great <laughs> pieces here. I don't know if folks, folks understand how the water is the water is getting deep. Uh, let me just unpack this so folks understand that we are right now dealing in a crisis. As human beings, we have to transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. Mm-hmm. We have polluters and we have some politicians who put polluters over people. We got that. The next thing that Whitney is now saying is that we actually can win. We have a solution. But the problem here within a solution, we have a movement that was birthed out of a middle class Birkenstock kind of mentality. And in that, that movement now, because it is now only drawing from those who it is around or feels comfortable around, now is faced with the most daunting task of having to fight for humanity and having to now have the resources. We should get back into the money mm-hmm. conversation. Oh, yeah. But having the resources and now having to now share that because they not to put either their comfort or their bias aside to put forth humanity. So now they are now in this 
unique position mm-hmm. to make a decision of do I move away from my comfort, what I've known all my life, or do I fight for humanity? Well, maybe we should ask this question, um, Whitney, yeah. to give the listeners and viewers an understanding of what the landscape really looks like at this mm-hmm. moment in time. And we know we are trying to work diligently to improve it, and that's yeah. the beauty of Green 2.0 and all the work that you and others are doing. If I ask the question, um, for our big green organizations, mm-hmm. are there any African Americans or Latinos who lead those organizations? Come on what now. would the answer be? <laughs> so... We might have one or two, and you're usually right now Asian Americans mm-hmm. um, who are largely leading those organizations. Asian or East Asian yes. is where we are right now. And I think we have a total of three, essentially mm. out of the top 40. Okay. Hold so, on, hold on. Three out of 40? Of the top 40 NGOs? That's what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, my. Come on now. We got to do better than this. <laughs> that's right. But that's our point. Like, yes, we have to do better than that. Right. And we're the progressive movement. See, that's the <laughs> thing. Come on. Come I'm on sorry, now, Mustafa. We, we, come on now, Mustafa. <laughs> we just got to give some real talk. Oh, we want to have some I real talk it. right now. <laughs> and let's I give, see we heading out Real Talk Avenue. <laughs> let's give some context to this situation. So Reverend Yearwood sits on the board of LCV. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mustafa Santiago Ali sits on the board of NWF. Yes. And the Union of Concerned Scientists. So mm-hmm. it's not like we don't. Um, have friends and, and are engaging on a high level in relationship to these conversations. Well, speaking from the outside way. only. We, we are in inside and right. outside. Right. Yeah. But if we don't have, and, and, and I always ask the question of myself and of others, if we don't have African Americans or Latinos who are leading these organizations, and mm. we are blessed to have some Asian American brothers and sisters who are, are helping to lead, and, and I appreciate that. But what does that say about the way that you view African-Americans and Latinos and their leadership if you are not allowing them into those positions to help the organizations move forward in this 21st century. That's a 20th century paradigm for me. Um, And we've got to move to a 21st century paradigm if we are actually going to win on these issues. So that's, that's always very curious that we are in the 2018 there are no folks of color, and, and I'll carry the weight for this. No, 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 you're going to carry No, no, no. And, and for those who are listening, it. you are listening yeah. to <laughs> Hip Hop Caucus, Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change, and we are on Real Avenue right now on WPFW. Yeah, so, you know, so Whitney, also, so, you know, we understand that in relationship to the presidents or CEO of these organizations where we currently are. What are the boards looking like? Yeah. So the boards are actually getting better on the the NGO side, especially. And people like you and others are really taking on those leadership roles and now are starting to ask, I think, those hard questions. So um, organizations like the Green Leadership Trust that is really designed to help do sort of about of matchmaking between an organization and board members of color or indigenous people. And that's a wonderful avenue for at least the green movement. But we need more of you. Mm-hmm. And we need more of you on boards to ask those tough questions. And especially as you think about about transitions, when the next CEO comes up, when the next senior vice president of programs, you need to have board members who are asking those tough questions and are also forcing, especially search firms Mm -hmm. and others to actually demand a slate of candidates that is diverse, especially when it comes to racial and ethnic diversity. And boards are starting to, which is really nice to see. And some search firms especially are starting to actually develop and also just 
give them slates of mm-hmm. diverse candidates. But that's been one of the largest sticking points over the years, which is your search firm has the same problem that you do, mm-hmm. which is your search firm usually has the same network you do because a search firm often doesn't have that much diversity itself. Mm-hmm. So if you go to them and say, find me the best candidate, oh, and by the way, I want diversity, what it really means is you're going to still pull from the same network. Mm-hmm. In, in, this, in, this, in this time that we have left, I know that one of our callers called in. Uh, thank you. And the caller said that he wants, he or she, uh, wants to know if other movements are facing similar issues and does solving economic inequality solve this problem? Really? That's probably part of it, yes. Mm-hmm. And there are, I'm sure, other movements that are, are struggling with this exact same issue. The environmental movement is, is by no stretch alone here. And I think economic inequality is part of it. You know, Who has the access to resources? Who has the access to power? Mm-hmm. Who can help to fight where that power plant goes? Who can give up both time, money, resources to show up at those meetings? Mm-hmm. Who can you know, show up to a lobby day? Who can do all of those things? Until we tackle some of those inequalities when it comes to economics, we will continue to have a lot of these challenges. Now, now, Whitney, one of the things, you know, Mustafa and I are both with the Hip Hop Caucus, mm-hmm. and we're very happy about that um, because it's we're actually we, we don't work for the big greens, <laughs> right? And so um, there's a little bit of, um, you know, there's a little bit of um, freedom. Fr- freedom. Thank you, Mustafa, <laughs> uh, in that. Um, but the question becomes also trust, which you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And how does this play into with foundations mm. because if we're talking about a movement that is based upon folks who are close to people their cultural space their mm. their network and that's not allowing them to break when they to, to figure out a bigger solution how does that play with foundations in this work as well that's that same thing carry over as well i see you laughing as you were answering this question <laughs> yeah hmm. it's so true you know i mean when you think about the foundation and the foundation world and how mm-hmm. foundations even get started mm-hmm. you know you've got to think about the the robber barons and you know the history of money in this country of who had the ability to even create a foundation that is worth five ten twenty a hundred million dollars mm-hmm. it was limited Mm-hmm. And then the people who they asked to then staff those foundations usually often started as family members. Mm-hmm. And that started the circle. And then the circle sort of grew from there. The foundations that have become, I think, more professionalized, meaning they've sort of broadened out. Some of them are really trying to tackle these issues of racial equity. Um, and I think of a couple off the top of my head, but it's taken really um, intentional people who have a personal commitment to these issues to help really transform a foundation. And I think about places like Kresge, mm-hmm. the Kresge Foundation, mm-hmm. um, the Annie Casey Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a bunch that have actually like taken this to heart and are thinking about, okay, how does this affect not only our grant making, which is huge, and what does our portfolio actually look like? Mm-hmm. You know, foundations often collect a lot of data from their grantees, but only recently, a lot of them have just started asking about the demographics of their grantees. Mm. And without that kind of data, you actually don't know, are you impacting the communities that you want? And then the corollary is, what are you doing internally as a foundation? Hmm. Have you also given your own staff the skills, tools, and expertise around equity and justice? Do they have access to knowledge, training, expertise? 
And folks are really starting to tackle that question. But I'd say, you know, in comparison to sort of the NGO community, they're still lagging. There are a few that are out front that I think are doing this quite well, but a lot needs to happen. And the other thing is actually transparency. You know, we at Green Tree Bono are asking, you know, NGOs to be transparent around their data. Mm-hmm. So the demographics of their staff and board. And we also ask foundations. But foundations is much harder because they don't have to be. There's no real forcing function for them. But what it tells me is if a, if a foundation has actually stepped up and said, yes, I'm going to give you my demographics on staff and board, it tells me that they're actually serious mm-hmm. because they've actually yeah. had a deliberation mm-hmm. internally to actually make that call. And I'm not saying they're you know far along in their journey when it comes to really embedding equity and justice across their institution, but they've at least usually started the conversation and starting a real earnest one. But foundations, what I also find fascinating is a lot of the biggest NGOs, once they have a foundation who's committed to them, they hold on to them. And they often don't share that access to that foundation with others. Hmm. And what I've been really trying to do with my seat is say, no, if I know a program officer, I want to introduce you to the five other people who maybe even run their own institutions like you all. Mm-hmm. So that you have access and even know that there's a program officer who might care about the issues and be willing to fund you. There's a great example, actually, of a woman who is running her own um, environmental organization really focused on oceans, was at a big conference and for the first time was really like, you know, a speaker. As a result of that, she got a multi-year grant because a foundation was in the audience, Mm -hmm. saw her speak and said, wow, that's amazing work. Let me fund you. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have access to those kinds of things and nobody introduces you to those people, it is hard to find what program officer can I even find their email, let alone hunt them down, let alone be searching around a conference to find them. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. And that lack of transparency hurts, especially communities of color, when you don't have the time or resources to be able to travel to California or travel to Michigan to actually meet with those foundations or get in front of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does, does that create a problem, though, where, because part of what we're saying here with Green 2.0 is that we, are, we want these, particularly these big green organizations, to begin to look at putting more people of color on their boards, look at hiring more people, but does that have a reverse effect when then you have a a large organization that has a thousand people and you're adding, you know, if if it's over a hundred people and if it's 16%, it's a 16 out of a hundred, (laughs) right? Or 12 out of a hundred, whatever it may be. And then we're saying, okay, we'll get us to 35 and add 10 more people. But does that then actually maybe cut down the power because they're now working within this institution that still may not understand the community that they're trying to serve. Because if the leadership and the organization is saying, okay, we'll hire 10 of you, we'll hire 20 of you, that's fine. But our thrust is still not going to be about fighting for your community. Does that then take almost the best and the brightest, almost move them away from actually from their community so that they almost have a situation where you have those who are on the outsides who are too small to do what they need to do, but then those on the inside who don't have the power to change those big organizations? I think it's a really interesting question. And what you're actually, I think, starting to see is actually the people inside are starting to change the organization. Mm-hmm. It's slow and it's hard work. Um, and it takes um, people with a fortitude to be able to do that and to still hold the trust of their own community. And it's a really interesting place for people who are in those roles 
to hold both things. Um, but I think it's a huge opportunity, and it will also change the big green groups over time to be more focused on community. And that's my hope, mm-hmm. is that then all of a sudden everybody is focused on all communities and not just some people. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take work and a lot of effort. My hope is that like the people who want to be in those big greens, who also want to focus on community, can, but the people who don't, don't have to. And it needs to be a both-and strategy, Hmm. from my perspective, um, to change the big greens, but to also have these organizations that are popping up that are focused on their communities. Mm -hmm. We need both. Because in the end, we need a lot of people to do this work. We don't just need a few. And so, from my perspective, both-and. And when you come in from Green 2.0 into one of these entities, you are helping them to really think more holistically about the direction they need to go and the benefits that come from that. Is that correct? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's not just like get the people in the door, but how are you embedding equity and justice across your organization? So everything from policies, you know, like your HR policies, (laughs) you know, to who you're hiring, to what are your actual policy outcomes when it comes to clean water or climate, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So you need to think about all of those things. So it's not just a simple like, oh, I fired the people, I'm done. No, that is like step one of 20. Yeah. And you got a long way to go. But our job is to help you through all of those stages and to make sure that you're actually committed to the full trajectory of that transformation mm-hmm. because it'll make you a better organization. You know, the organizations that are starting to do this are already seeing dramatic changes mm-hmm. in, you know, their issues on coal and the people who want to come and work for them. You're eventually, hopefully, beating them away with a stick yeah. if you do this right. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, Whitney, thank you yeah. so much. I mean, thank you. This has got to be a part A. Yeah. Uh, we we, yeah, we, we got to have you back and continue and, li- and listen and see how folks are doing. Because we'll ultimately, be we're all in this together. That's right. And we said that there is no planet B, right? right. So we all. We haven't in, found it yet. We, all, you know, we haven't found what we. <laughs> or some folks might have found it and ain't told it. Right. And ain't told us nothing. So, so we'll have Whitney come back when we do the show from the trees. Is that what you're saying? There I like go. that. Okay. I mean, yeah, yeah no, there definitely. We, we just heard a, a, a you just heard Whitney Tone, who's the ED of Green 2.0, just really break it down. Thank you all all for listening to Hip Hop Caucus. Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Thanks for joining us this week on Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change, a hip-hop caucus platform. Let's keep this important dialogue going. Be a part of the conversation by following us on social media at Think 100 Show and at Hip Hop Caucus. Visit our website at think100.info for blog content, information on upcoming events, or to connect with us. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever podcasts are available so you'll never miss an episode. Rate and review us or simply tell a friend. Climate change impacts all of us. And if we think 100%, we can achieve a 100% sustainable and just world together. Think 100, think 100, think 100, think 100.